Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be in verse 29, just one verse today. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, you guys been listening to Christmas music? Anybody love Christmas tunes? All in on some Christmas music? We, um, we traveled to see my family uh, uh, this week. Uh, for a couple of days, and on the way back, I finally hit my limit, and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm done with Christmas music. I'm going to have to listen to something else for a minute. Uh, I'm sure we'll get back into it uh, later on today, uh, but I needed a little bit of, break, uh, of a break. One of my favorite Christmas songs is uh, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. You guys know that song? Love that song? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, if Andy Williams isn't, you know, particularly who you enjoy, uh, there's all sorts of other people who've covered that song from Amy Grant to Ben Rector to Patti LaBelle to Thomas Rhett. Uh, of course, Pentatonix, because uh, they have covered every Christmas song at this point. So if you want no instrumentals and all acapella, that's your thing. Uh, also, August B- Burns Red covers it. So if you're into some heavier music, uh, then uh, it's a good cover of that song as well. Why is it that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year? Well, according to Andy Williams, it's because kids are jingle-belling and everyone's telling you to be of good cheer. Uh, We have parties for hosting and marshmallows for roasting and caroling out in the snow. Uh, We're going to tell scary ghost stories. I made fun of that uh, last service, and then I was informed that's about Charles Dickens, and so I guess I'm just not that cultured. I didn't know that. Um, And tales of glories of Christmas is long, long ago. Of course, there's going to be much mistletoeing if you're lucky, and loved ones will be near, right? That's what's so wonderful about Christmas. I think Christmas is unique. It's unlike any other holiday uh, that we observe. We don't have an endless number of songs celebrating Columbus Day. Uh, We don't anticipate President's Day all year. And while I love Thanksgiving and the 4th of July, no one ever says that they have a magical quality about them. But that is precisely how we feel about Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year, full of wonder, wonder, amazement, and majesty. Why? Why is it that Christmas is so unique? Why do we talk about being filled with wonder at Christmas? Well, so far, if you've been with us through Advent, we said it's because of who Christmas is about, Jesus. And we've seen in John chapter 1 that Christmas is unique because Jesus is unique. Uh, that he is, John, disciple of Jesus, tells us the word. Or that Jesus came to speak to us, to tell us, to show us exactly who God is. We've learned that Jesus was the life of men. That Jesus came, lived the life that we were supposed to live to give us the life that we were supposed to live. That Jesus is the light, that he came illuminating the darkness, that he's the only son from the Father, that Jesus came as the new and better Adam, the true human being, that Jesus came as the new and better Israel, the true blessing to the world, and that Jesus came as the new and better David, the one and true king. And then we learned last week that Jesus is God in the flesh who moved into the neighborhood and dwelt among us. In John chapter 1, John's telling us, for these reasons, Jesus is unique. And so because Jesus is unique, when we celebrate his birth, that is also unique. Now, as much as all of these characteristics of Jesus are wonderful and worthy of celebrating, there is more to the story. 
And that's where we're going to pick up in John chapter 1, verse 29. Just to give you a little context, John the disciple is now going to write about John the Baptist. Two different guys. John the Baptist is a cousin of Jesus who becomes a, a preacher, very famous. Crowds flock to hear him. He's baptizing, uh, doing so, so people could demonstrate their repentance, their willingness to turn back to God. He's also uh, become a preacher outside of the religious establishment. And so uh, some of those guys don't love him. And in fact, in the story right before our verse, some folks from the kind of a religious establishment send a coalition to question John. And they say, who are you? Are you the Christ or the Messiah or the one who's been promised who's going to come and rescue us? And John's like, no, that's not me. I'm not that guy. And they go, well, are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? And he's like, no. And finally, exasperated, they say, well, who are you? Tell us who you are. He quotes from Isaiah 40 and just says, I, I'm a forerunner. I'm the guy that God sent to prepare you and to prepare the way for the coming rescuer, the Messiah. That's who I am. And so right after that, it's where we pick up in our text, John 1, 29. The next day, he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist tells the crowd there, and I think us today, behold, he gives them an instruction, a very basic instruction. He says, look, pay attention, look this way. Don't miss this. He's saying, this is important. I need you to look intently. I need you to look seriously. I need you to look urgently. I need you to behold something. Now, Christmas is a time for beholding, right? We spend time observing, looking, that's why we decorate outside. I love Christmas lights, right? What do you do? You just drive around and look. You behold. You take it in. Uh, when I was growing up as a kid in Warner Robins, Georgia, we had the light man. Now, you've never heard of the light man, but he was regionally famous. Let me show you. We got some pictures of him. He would decorate his yard with so many lights, you could probably see it from outer space. All right, unbelievable number of lights. And not only that, but the light man had a light suit. And every night through the entire month of December, the light man would put on his light suit in front of his very well-lit house, walk out to the road and greet everybody who drove by with a Merry Christmas. And everybody drove by. In my little town that I grew up in, everybody was there. I mean, it was a line. It seemed like miles you would wait to see the light man. And what did we do when we got there? He didn't invite us in for dinner, right? There's no sort of game going on. There's no activity. We just went just to look, just to take it in. And we would be filled with all sorts of awe and wonder at the display. And likewise, John is telling the crowd in his day, look, take it in. Don't miss this. Look intently. And then John the Baptist gives Jesus one more title in John chapter 1. So he's the word. He's a life of men. He's the light. He's the only son, God in the flesh. And then John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God. Now, what does John mean when he calls Jesus the lamb of God? Well, his original audience would have immediately connected that title to another story. The story of the Passover, which happens in the book of Exodus. You might remember the story. God's people are enslaved in Egypt. 
under the Pharaoh. And God chooses Moses, sends him back to Egypt to deliver a message from God to Pharaoh, which is a very simple message. Let my people go, right? We need to get out of here. It's time for you to end this and we need to leave. And Pharaoh, loving free labor, says, no, you're staying right here. And so what God does in response to Pharaoh is he sends a series of plagues. It's a pretty dark part of the story. The last plague is a plague of the death of the firstborn son. And that plague is for all the people living in Egypt. No one is exempt, whether they belong to God's people, the Hebrews, or their Egyptians. All are going to be underneath this judgment. But God, in his mercy, provides a way out from underneath the judgment. He says that if a family will sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood over the door of their home, then that judgment will pass by them and they will be saved or they will be rescued. And in the story, that's exactly what happens. Those who sacrifice a lamb, their families were spared. This lamb served then as a, as a substitute. Its death was substituted for the death of the firstborn. So when John the Baptist calls Jesus the lamb, he's saying, hey, here is the sacrifice, the substitute, the one that we have been waiting for. The Passover was just a shadow of what was to come. God foretelling what was actually going to save us, which is Jesus was going to come on the scene and provide a way out from underneath God's judgment for us all. That Jesus came in order to rescue people by being a sacrifice for them in their place. And then John the Baptist calls him the lamb, not just the lamb, but what? The lamb of God. The Passover, each family had to provide their own lamb, right? So Steve had to go out and acquire a lamb and bring it back to the house. And Timmy had to make the sacrifice for the lamb, right? And Robert had to go out and spread the blood over the doorpost. But in Jesus, John the Baptist is saying, this is the lamb that God has provided. Not the lamb that you have to provide for yourself, that you have to go out and find, that you have to do the work. The lamb of God is the lamb that God has provided for us in our place. He is the lamb of God. And this lamb, the next phrase John the Baptist tells us, is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The purpose of Jesus' sacrifice is to accomplish something for us, to take something away from us, to remove the thing that hinders us, burdens us, holds us down, and the thing that separates us from being in a relationship with God, this thing the Bible calls sin. And the scope is the sin of the world, not just the Israelites or the people of Abraham. But Jesus is coming to be the sacrifice or the substitute for all people in all places, which is very good news for us here today. Now, again, remember the Passover is one lamb per family. But when Jesus comes, he is the ultimate lamb or the supreme sacrifice and his sacrifices for the sins of all people in all places. Charles Spurgeon says, God from all eternity appointed the Lord Jesus. He was chosen and ordained to be the great sacrifice for sin. And how did he do it? Well, John, the disciple who's writing this eyewitness account of Jesus's life, doesn't end the story in John chapter one. 
He continues the story all the way through Jesus's life. And at the end, we see Jesus die on the cross. And so God, from the very beginning, all eternity, purposed to save his people through the sacrificial death of his son on the cross. And that's what makes Christmas wonderful. What makes Christmas wonderful is that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to rescue us by laying down his life for us in our place. It is the end of the story that makes the beginning of the story significant. I mean, just think about it. What if Star Wars ended with Luke failing to become a Jedi? There's no story there. Nobody wants to watch a guy, a movie about a guy who almost becomes a Jedi against all odds. What if Buddy the Elf decided to not go to New York and find his dad? There's no story there. What if Bruce Willis didn't rescue everyone in Nakatomi Plaza? What if he just got stuck in the AC vent? That's a dumb movie, right? What if Kevin didn't defeat the wet bandits? What if he just hid under the bed while they robbed the house and that was it? That's not a good story. Without the cross, Christmas would be more like President's Day. We like it, not because of its historical significance or even because it's personally impacted us in some way. We like it just because we get the day off from work. President's Day doesn't directly impact my life, but Christmas. Christmas directly impacts each and every one of us. Why? Because we do have the end of the story. Jesus was born, which is worth celebrating. But Jesus also lived a perfect life, the life that you and I were intended to live. And Jesus laid down his life for us in our place so that we could be reconnected in a relationship with God. John, the same disciple, writes later in a letter to a church this, 1 John chapter 4. He says, and this is love. Uh, And this is the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. That word means a substitutionary atonement for our sins. So John, the disciple, reflecting on now this entire life of Jesus says, here's what you need to know. The love of God is made manifest or known perfectly in the fact that he sent his only son. And not just his only son showed up in person, but his only son laid down his life for you in your place as a substitute, atoning sacrifice, so that you and I could be freed from being underneath God's judgment and be reconciled to God. And so Christmas is a time for beholding But specifically, Christmas is a time for beholding Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice for sin. Now think about what this means in connection with the rest of John chapter 1. We learn that Jesus is the Word. That Jesus is speaking or displaying or showing us who God is. So think about now the implication that the God of the universe wants you to know this about him. That he wants you to know that he is not distant, but close. That he's not taking, but giving. That he is not lording over you, but dying for you in your place. 
Think about Jesus, the life of men. That the way that the God of of the universe is extending real life to you is by himself laying down his life for you. Think about Jesus as the light of the world. That he came to illuminate the darkness precisely by his death on the cross. What God wants you to know about him, what Adam talked about last week, is that he is full of what? Grace upon grace. And that grace of God is on display for us most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. So this Christmas is a time for beholding Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice for sin. And this story demands a response from each one of us. What's the response? The response is to behold. For some of us, we don't know God. For some of us today, our sin has still separated us from God. For some of us, Christmas is great because we like presents, we like lights, and we like time with the family. But we don't know the fuller significance of the story because we don't understand the end, and particularly the way the end is for us. So the response for you today is to behold Jesus. Look to Jesus in what the Bible calls faith. Faith is to trust Jesus and trust him completely. And so today, perhaps your response is to stop trusting in yourself, your own good behavior or your own ingenuity and start trusting Jesus. This once and for all sacrifice for you in your place. And for those of us who have trusted Jesus, the call is to behold as well. That in beholding Jesus, we're actually transformed to be more like Jesus. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Here's what Paul is saying, and he wants you to grab this morning. The Christian life is not about gritting our teeth and trying harder. It is about beholding or looking intently in the right direction at the right person, and that person is Jesus. And the more you and I remind ourselves actively of the goodness of Jesus, especially at Christmas time, the more like Jesus we become. In other words, it is our worship that transforms our hearts. So this Christmas, the invitation is for you to see the significance of Christmas is about the end of the story. The reason it's important is because the end of the story, Jesus laid down his life for you in your place then rose from the dead three days later. So would you behold him? Would you look to him? Would you ask him to save you, to rescue you? Would you, Christian, continue to look to him, behold him, take him in, be filled with wonder, awe, and amazement? Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.